Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we've got a very fun and I think very interesting, and it's certainly a very different conversation than you're used to hearing here on Crafted, but it's near and dear to my heart. So I'm really hoping that a number of you come along for the ride and kind of get caught up into what we're doing here in this conversation. It's a conversation about the art and the craft of tennis, but we also touch on some of the unique aspects of the art and craft of a whole number of sports out there. And in addition to that, we're talking about great sports writing. What are some of the elements of the best sports writing? And we are going to be using as an example of great sports writing, my favorite piece, actually, called Roger Federer as Religious Experience. This is one of my favorite essays by one of my favorite modern authors, David Foster Wallace. And so, yeah, we're talking about the art of tennis and great sports writing. And then I didn't really know that the conversation was going to go this direction, but I think we can safely say that this is a conversation also about top five lists. And we do this a lot in sports, right? Who are the top five greatest basketball players or hockey players or tennis players ever? And this leads us into an interesting conversation about how one ought to go about assembling such a list. And I like it because I think it is relevant whether we're talking about downhill ski racers or the best big mountain skiers of all time, or again, tennis players. Now, joining me on this conversational journey is Troy Russ, who happens to be the Community Development Director of Crested Butte. But in this case, and for this conversation, more importantly, Troy is a very passionate tennis player, pretty accomplished tennis player too. You'll hear more about that in our conversation. He's also a very passionate skier and he's a big fan of basketball and football and a number of sports and you're going to get to hear him explain why he actually thinks tennis is the greatest sport and troy also importantly happens to be my neighbor and somebody with whom i talk about stuff like this with and again we'll touch on that a bit more in this conversation so this is a fun one. This is a very different one. And I really hope you enjoy it. This episode of Crafted is presented by our Blister Craft Collective, which is a collection of some of our favorite craft companies and some of the very best companies across a range of craft categories that support the independent work that we do here at Blister. You can learn more about the Blister Craft Collective companies on our website and we'll include a link to the Craft Collective in the show notes of this episode. Check them out because I am confident that some of these companies are going to become some of your new favorite companies too. And now, let's talk tennis and sports and great sports writing and top five lists with Troy Russ. Here we go. 
All right. Well, I am very happy to be back in Blister headquarters with my friend and neighbor, Troy Russ, for a little amateur hour episode here, an amateur hour edition of Crafted. I think we need to set the stage for why we're talking about this. And the real story is this conversation sort of happened at my house a few days ago. Does does this seem right so far to you, Troy? No, it, it evolved from our appreciation of sports. Okay. <laughs> drinking over a little whiskey. <laughs> but we got talking about tennis and and like I like to kind of stitch together like for people, maybe in particular for this conversation, they're like, how on earth did you guys get to this topic? But I have been reading Andre Agassi's autobiography called Open. And I did that because as the whole world knows, I'm a massive fan of Succession. And the actor Jeremy Strong mentioned for like the 15th time I've heard somebody in like in my life mention Agassi's autobiography. So I started reading that. I knew that you were interested in tennis. I don't think I understood the depths of that interest and passion. And that led to a conversation the other night over some nice whiskey where we really kind of got into the weeds. And I was like, I want to do this publicly because I think there's a lot of interesting questions, even for somebody who is not interested, frankly, in tennis at all. So we're we're going to touch on a whole bunch of different things. Um, and uh, on that note, Troy, maybe we'll now just let you talk a bit more about your own background in tennis. Um, I'm the youngest of seven. I have six brothers. And my mom loved tennis. And she taught my dad how to play. And he fell in love with the game. And subsequently, all of their children became tennis players. Uh, some of them very successful. The, the last four were young enough to take tennis in a long series of time. And so I became a competitive uh, junior tennis player, uh, was open, uh, traveled around the West in the Intermountain West, occasionally to a national tournament as a junior. And I was lucky enough to fall in love with the sport as a young kid. And I think genetics, I see out of one eye, mm. uh, held me to a certain level, but I certainly enjoyed it to that level. I was able to play on the CU tennis team my freshman year and then realized sort of my limitations on how far I could go with only monovision. Hmm. Um, and that was it. And so I went into architecture, but that is the love of the game that I came from. Is this the part where I make you tell your Agassiz story? I hate this story. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good story though. Pain, so, painful as it is. I mean, come on. So as a junior tennis player, uh, I was 14. Mr. Agassi was 11 at the time. Nice to use Mr. Agassi for an 11 year old. <laughs> but he was the number one seed in the Intermountain West in Vegas. And I was a wild card draw to get into the tournament. I was lucky enough to play Agassi in the first round. So the number one seed. And all things were clicking. I was playing out of my mind. The ball, as they say, was the size of a basketball and mm. you could do no wrong. And I was fortunate enough to get up for love against Agassi and the entire tournament came to watch the match. Um, I wasn't thinking, and this is the beauty of, mm. of tennis, it's muscle memory. And if you can play instinctually without thinking, you're going to do well in tennis. But unfortunately, it's a mental game. And my brother sort of made a passing comment, you're playing out of your mind. 
keep it up. I started thinking <laughs> and, and the true talents between the two of us came through. I lost the match six, four, six love. Huh. Uh, but it's a fun story. I, I didn't know much of anything about, I, I didn't really know that Agassi was this incredible child prodigy. I mean, obviously when he first came onto the professional scene, he was still really young. He was 15. 15. <laughs> That's crazy. And you were playing him. He was 11. He was 11 and it, the number one seed in the tournament. <laughs> um, so going through his story and learning, you know, the, the spoiler alert that maybe I was the only person in the world who didn't know this, but he, he hated tennis. So that's, I mean, that's a simplistic thing to say. I mean, in fairness, I think to him, but um, it's a complex and complicated story. But um, when you now, when I now hear an anecdote about that you were playing him, he was 11 and you were 14, that has a lot, I have a lot more context now than I, I previously did. So we were the other night talking about tennis and about this story again. and. You started making some very interesting claims about really just the sport of tennis. And I think you went so far as to call it the greatest sport. I did. Okay. That is going to be one of our topics for this conversation. Explain. Well, it's a combination of many sports. Um, the the hand-eye coordination, I could only think of basketball as maybe the next closest in hand-eye coordination. But tennis, you're not controlling the ball. Your opponent is controlling the ball and you're reacting. And so you have to adjust your hands, your eyes, your body to power the ball back. And so that's a very big difference of you controlling the ball versus the ball being controlled by your opponent. So the hand-eye coordination is, I think, second to none. Hockey, I think, would be the only one that could be comparable. Next, it's, it's basketball footwork. It's soccer footwork. It's boxing footwork. Mm -hmm. But the footwork, the speed, you're moving around the court just like a basketball player is. Shuffling, shuffling, sprinting, shuffling, shuffling, just like soccer as well. Mm -hmm. But the footwork is so important, just like soccer and basketball, that you have to position yourself to be able to hit the ball at 80 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And you don't do that with your arm. You do that with your body. And that all comes from footwork. And so the speed and the quickness of the footwork of tennis is, is comparable to the most complicated sports in tennis or in the world. And then lastly, I think it's boxing. It's the challenge. It's the mental sport. Mm -hmm. You are out there one-on-one -on -one with your opponent and you're, you know, their strengths and weaknesses, and you're trying to expose them at the exact same time. They're trying to expose yours. Yeah. And so it's the combination of all of that, the sheer athletic genius of the sport in hand-eye and footwork, but then the mental aspect of trying to beat your opponent. And, um, it's hard pressed for me to see another sport that puts so much pressure on the individual to be great. So I am no expert in the sport I'm about to mention, but the one that some people might want us to mention right now would be, first of all, the hand-eye coordination of hitting a baseball, and then maybe the battle between a pitcher and a hitter. What do you think of that? Have I think you th they're, they're very comparable, but you have a strike zone. Yeah. In tennis, our strike zone is much larger. Much you don't larger. have a strike zone and you have to react. Um, yes, the racket is bigger than a bat, but the ball is actually moving all over the court and you have to chase it down. And it's yeah. coming in with different speeds, just like baseball curve, flat knuckleball. Um, it's comparable. I think I love the challenge of the pitcher controlling the ball and the batter mm -hmm. reacting to it. That is tennis. Yeah. But now move it. Yeah. 
and now have them in full motion. (laughs) And that's the, that's the tougher part. Hmm. Hmm. As we were talking about this the other night, and as I've been thinking about it for a few days prior to this conversation, it's something I really want to bring up again with, with Cody Townsend when we do our reviewing the news. Um, Somebody out there is probably going to get upset if we're talking about tennis arguably being the greatest sport. I, I don't operate that way. I, I find these conversations interesting and, and I think they help us illuminate other sports that we love. You are a passionate skier. We share that in common, you know? So if anybody's getting angry that um, we're not calling their favorite sport the best, um, calm down. And, and maybe use this conversation as a chance to think through what are the unique elements of hockey, of football, of basketball, right? There's stuff to appreciate, obviously, in all of these sports. I actually like this idea that tennis, I like the idea that tennis might be the greatest. Uh, I'm also not a tennis player. I know something about skiing. I know something about mountain biking. I know something about football and basketball, the sports that I feel like I know best. It really doesn't feel the same as tennis. Now, that said, you said something early on that when you're talking about your match against your own match against Agassi, you said you weren't thinking, then you started to think, and then it kind of fell apart. But my thought is we hear a lot. And once again, in an article that we are about to start discussing by David Foster Wallace, where David Foster Wallace is talking about the importance in tennis of setting up shots. So you're thinking four or five shots ahead. And to me, knowing a lot less about tennis than you, that to me doesn't, I don't see, I don't know how to square that with the idea of like, I'm not thinking at all. I'm just acting. I'm just being instinctual. And I mean, that's, that's a valid point, but tennis, the nets are three foot eight on the sides and three foot six in the middle and it's lower in the middle and the courts are longer. So you want to use the diagonal hit cross court. It's a longer court. It's not going to hit the net. You have a higher percentage chance and that's your setup shot and you're trying to hit it deeper and deeper and drive it so that you're trained to hit cross court. And then once the ball lands short, you react. And it's the opportunity or the mistake. You're trying to drive something deeper so your opponent hits something shorter. And the moment it hits shorter, then you take the higher risk and drive it down the line. And so you are, it is a chess match. You are you are positioning your game. And I have a short game. I was serving volleyer. So I would chip and charge and I would make big hitters charge in. And so to say I wasn't thinking, I think the difference is instead of being instinctual to the shot that's in front of you, I started to aim the ball with my head uh-huh. instead of the natural uh-huh. instinct of the game. And so once you're trying to control the ball to exactly where you want to go and you're not exactly there, you're foot off, you're five feet off, suddenly your mind starts challenging you mm-hmm. and you start thinking about the last shot instead of the next shot. And so that's where you don't want to think in tennis because you want to think about the next shot and not the last shot. Mm-hmm. And so if you can keep your mind focused on that, that's where I started falling apart. Let's be honest. He was not in his best position, Agassi, and I was playing out of my mind. It quickly showed the skill level between the two of us. Uh-huh. But that's what I mean by am I think overthinking a shot that in a sport that you have to think. Did that make any sense? I think so. It's a subtle because you know, thinking through basketball, for example, I just don't think 
anybody can say that basketball requires the same level of strategizing. It is far more, it's like you do well to just shut the brain down. And yeah, you'll like, oh, look, the defender has cheated too far this way. I'm in a backdoor cut or something like that. But especially, frankly, reading through David Foster Wallace's descriptions of watching Roger Federer and kind of breaking down that game where he's talking about Federer setting up a winning shot like five shots in advance, that that sure isn't happening in football, not by the players. It's the coaches are up there. And that's where the chess match, I think, really takes place in football. It's the the chess match is being fought by the coaches, less so the players. I Somebody might criticize that a bit, but still feels very different to me than tennis, which does feel like chess in real time. What do we think? No, I agree. I think basketball is interesting. If you saw the NBA championship with the Nuggets and Djokovic. Of course we saw it. We watched it together. I know. Um, The coaches positioned the players to cut at the right time, giving the Joker all these different opportunities Mm -hmm. to either shoot, to pass, or make a decision. And so the way they were positioned on the court, their movement, if you have a great player who can see the court, you can distribute. In tennis, you're doing this all on your own time. Mm -hmm. You don't have someone cutting to the rim. And that's, I think, a huge difference in this sport. Yeah. And speaking of the Joker, like what makes him amazing is, I think we can say his vision, but it is instinct. I mean, it is instinct. He's, he can see things, but he's not, he's not like, all right, I'm going to come down the court this play and do this so that the fifth time down the court, I've set up the defender. There can be a bit of that that's there's a lot less of that than i think is happening on any given point in tennis i think yeah well you have to you you do get surprised you think you're setting up the point but your opponent is setting up their point as well uh-huh. and so you have to react and i think one of federer's greatest aspects is his defensive game and so when he gets outplayed or outthought out strategized his tactics and his ability to react and change the momentum of a point through defense is I think him and Nadal might be the best to ever lived Hmm. in their defensive game Hmm. and be able to get things back. And so there is a big reactive point of tennis because you as an individual aren't necessarily controlling the point, although you try to. Yeah, fair. So we were talking about tennis. That led me to start asking you about the greatest tennis players. That then got me asking you about Roger Federer because one of my all-time favorite writers, uh, David Foster Wallace, published a piece in the New York Times uh, on August 20th, 2006. And this is probably my favorite single piece of sports writing ever. And the piece is called Roger Federer as Religious Experience. And I feel like I basically haven't stopped thinking about this piece since I read it in 2006. And any time we get into a conversation about one of the greats in in any sport, I just kind of come back to this. And and so I wanted to ask you about Federer. I'm always curious. And then I said, Troy, you need to... I've told you about this piece a few times. And then the other night I was like, go read this thing. And then I got thinking about it. I was like, actually, I want to do a podcast to get your thoughts on this piece and help us again 
see what we think. Because I sure hope listeners go also read this piece and hopefully they love it as much as I do. Maybe they offer some other things that they think are some of the best pieces of sports writing out. I'd love to hear what they think is kind of a contender for that, you know, greatest sports profile ever. Um, So let me just start here because this is the question I've been dying to ask. What did you, as somebody who knows the game, who has watched Federer, watched him his whole career, what did you think of David Foster Wallace's take on Federer? I think he nailed it. I think Roger Federer is the greatest tennis player to ever walk the planet. Um, And the way, the grace in which he controls his body and controls the sport, I think Foster Wallace described it eloquently. Hmm. Uh, It is one of the best pieces of sports writing I have read. Um, He writes it from a fan's point of view. Yeah. And his pure joy of the sport and his understanding of the sport. And I think he does a really good job in explaining that to the reader and understand the tactics and the emotion and the physicality of the sport. Um, I thought it was really well done and I'm very glad you uh, got me on the article. Hmm. Another thing that I think is remarkable, a word you didn't mention is him breaking down the strategy. He, He literally will talk about this particular point. Actually, he says, in a match, I believe in 2005 against Agassi, and he is just doing this critical analysis of a specific point and like what Federer is doing in that example. And I'm like, this is, this is phenomenal. And we've got one of the greatest novelists and essayists and critical thinkers of a generation, you know, showing real love and care and attention for a sport that is loved by many, but there's probably some other people being like, why is some literary dude slumming it by like breaking down some stupid sport, sports ball thing. And um, anybody who kind of might have that attitude should absolutely read this piece, I think. I Um, agree. And his description of that point uh, not only describes the, the strategy and the tactics of the sport, but he shows you the impossibility (laughs) <laughs> of shots that Federer can make against physics and m- changing momentum. And I think he called them awe moments. Or I can't exactly remember the phrase. Well, he called them Federer moments. Where you're in awe. Yeah, yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen that come out of him where it shouldn't been a- have been able to be done. Mm-hmm. Which is why the piece is called Roger Federer as religious experience. Like you are seeing the ineffable, the impossible. And uh, I love I love getting a writer of the highest caliber trained on like, okay, cool, I'm going to break down for you a tennis point. There's, there's also a line in that piece. Um, this is quoting David Foster Wallace. He says, a top athlete's beauty is next to impossible to describe directly or to evoke. But that's exactly what I think his piece goes on to do, maybe better than any other bit of sports writing I've ever seen. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think if you're not a tennis fan and you're able to read that article and appreciate it, I think you'll quickly become a tennis fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I, you know, I, I told you, um, David Foster Wallace took his life some years ago, which still like feels like such a massive loss. And at the time, um, it was really 
uh, it was shocking. I, I never met the man. I, I read much of his work and that really knocked me back. And reading this piece again, as I did uh, Saturday morning, just a couple of days ago, I'm just like, I, I, I just wish we could have had him go watch a season of hockey and break that down. Do this same thing for basketball. Do this same thing for football. You know, like I, I, and I would love for others to kind of pick up that mantle and go try to do this work. And I think one of the reasons I want to see that is because I think kind of what you just said, pieces like this illuminate the world and open up our capacity of appreciation. And I, the world is kind of infinite. I wish we all had the time and bandwidth and years on this planet to gain that appreciation about sort of everything out there, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, I think storytelling is my secret to enjoying life, both appreciating what I'm learning from and also trying to express my feelings to others, is how good you can tell a story. You capture the attention of your friends and audience, and Foster Wallace did a great job at that. And uh, and I would love to have hear him write about the Joker. Yeah. Oh and my God. Just the skill oh set behind him and and his mastery of words to describe it. Yeah. Probably would have been his favorite basketball player. Yeah. Actually, I want to ask you one more thing in the David Foster Wallace piece itself. DFW does something that. A lot of us might say about a number of sports, like, but like we could probably say this about hockey, like, oh, you know, watching it on TV just doesn't do it justice, like being there. And you can probably say that about basketball and interestingly, football, the modern game of football. I don't know, man, with our like big high definition TVs, the ability to like watch a play that lasts three seconds, but then on TV, see it from six different angles and hyper definition. It's actually pretty great as opposed to being at the game. But um, DFW makes the claim that television just, you cannot appreciate the greatness of somebody like a Federer or an Agassi by sitting at home watching it on a TV. And I wanted to ask you specifically about that. Do you agree with that point? And, and how would you, and, I, and like why? I couldn't agree with it more. Tennis is an unbelievably fast or quick sport. And TV, the angle that the camera uses is oblique. From above, you don't get a sense of depth or speed of the ball. And so Andy Roddick, one of the great Americans in the early 2000s, won the US Open, would hit a serve 150 miles an hour. On a 140-foot court, that's Foster Wallace goes and describes this, yeah. that it leaves Roddick's racket and within 0.38 seconds, it's hitting Roger Federer's racket. <laughs> and if you think of the speed of which that is, and this is what I think Roger was different than anyone, his eyesight and his quickness could return that at the Wimbledon finals effortlessly. Mm. Uh, and that the speed is just unmatched. So if you go to the Open or go to any local tournament and witness someone hit a serve over 130 miles an hour, and see the opposition get it back. And then the rally is proceeding around 60 miles an hour to 70 miles an hour. You think of these speeds as a knuckleball on a pitch, uh, as constant moving around the court. The power of tennis and the speed of tennis, TV does not do it justice. Have you seen a lot of other sports in person? I've tried. I don't, yeah. I don't know if I've seen enough. You know, the, the majors, of course, 
uh, I've seen them all. Yeah. Um, I, um, I used to go a lot of Chicago Bulls basketball games, just watching Jordan live in person. And yeah, there's no question like seeing Jordan in person. Um, I sometimes think like on a television box, we see everything, right? Like we see Star Wars movies where these spaceships are shooting lasers at each other. So there's something about, I think, or just our suspension of belief that happens if we're viewing it on TV that when you're just in the same room with an individual, right. it is different and you can't believe kind of what you're looking at. But I never heard anybody articulate why tennis in particular, it's if you haven't seen the game up close and in right. person, you you won't fully get it. So I saw one Formula One race huh? and my brother got me on a bridge and he said, don't do anything but look down. Don't look at the cars coming, look down. And the cars all went under the bridge, 170 to 200 miles an hour. Boom, 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 boom. And you just suddenly appreciate what those drivers and their skills can do at that speed. So John McEnroe, Peyton Manning has Peyton's places. Yeah. ESPN now has McEnroe's places. Huh. And in the second episode, they have NASCAR race a tennis serve. And it was coming what? around at 140 miles an hour. And this, if you appreciate race caring, because the speed of car racing is what is so attractive about it. And there was shown that they timed the, the car coming around the serve at 140 miles an hour. And they had the local pro, I forgot who it was, was able to hit a 140 mile an hour serve and the ball beat him to the finish line. It's just, it's a, it's a way of describing speed. Mm -hmm. And I think Formula One standing on a bridge, looking straight down, you suddenly appreciate speed and tennis being only 140 foot long court with 140 mile an hour serve. It's a fast game. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about your personal top five tennis players ever. And... I don't know that you ranked these the other night. Are you prepared to actually rank them? I am. You made me think. Good, good, good. Yeah. Okay. Um, should we, where do you want to start? You want to start with one or you want to start with five? I'll start with five because you, you made the absurd comment <laughs> that night that forced me to like defend I, my man. Uh, I, so I, let's all be honest. If you make it as a professional tennis player, you're an unbelievable athlete yeah. to make it into even a conversation of the greatest of all time, you deserve to be there for some reason. Yeah. And so who's notoriously off my list is the Grand Slam winner, Novak Djokovic, and might win another Wimbledon and be two up on everybody. Um, he has a, easily the best backhand ever to walk the planet Earth. And so you could argue about individuals, but I'm going to make my five. Yeah. Yes. And number five is John McEnroe. Uh, the, sh the sheer artistic skill of him. He changed the game. He crushed one of the greatest players of all times, will to play the game, not just beat him. He retired a year after he lost to McEnroe and Borg will tell you he lost because he knew he couldn't beat McEnroe. Mm -hmm. And you're talking a 13 grand slam winner admitting he lost someone that has only won one at the time. And he retired huh. McEnroe came in young, but he had a hand-eye coordination and skill set that changed the game. No one was as quick as McEnroe, the greatest doubles player ever to walk the earth. And he had the single greatest year in tennis with a 96.7 winning percentage in 1984. He lost one match out of 84. Huh. No one 
can match John McEnroe for that year. Now, unfortunately, Mr. McEnroe was a mental midget (laughs) and his demons got the best of him and he couldn't be the best player because his own mental limitations. But for sheer artistry, skill and changing of the sport, and most importantly, driving what I would say the third best tennis player of all time to retire, put McEnroe at five. And you were mad at me the other night because I was like, wait, do people who really know tennis, would they say you are over-ranking McEnroe right now? And that's what you almost threw something at me. Right. I don't think anyone who appreciates the sport would say McEnroe isn't in the top 10 or even in the top five. McEnroe's skill at tennis, he had McEnroe moments that long before Federer would make shots that no one could believe it was happening. and. Yes, he was aggressive, but he also more played more Davis Cup games than any other athlete in the world. And mm-hmm. Davis Cup is a world competition in tennis. So he dedicated his life to the U.S. tennis program. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot more to John McEnroe than his attitude. Would you say McEnroe is your personal favorite player? He's tied with Federer as my okay. personal favorite. Okay. Yeah. That was actually fun for me the other night. Because I, I mean, first of all, John McEnroe might be the best sports commentator ever. I love listening to his analysis and him getting frustrated with players and the rest. I don't, is that an overstatement? Again, no, he's I'm, great. okay, you think he's good too. Good. I just not sure if that was a situation where McEnroe was great back for then, but if where it's just like, oh, he's been sort of passed by a number of players in the last, say, 20 to 30 years. In terms of Grand Slam wins, he only has seven. Yeah. Right. So you you look at Agassi as eight. You yeah. you go higher. Everyone, Lindell, Sampras, you go higher. They're, they have more Grand Slam wins. And if you simply go by championships, then McEnroe's not even in the conversation. What I'm looking at is what he brought to the game, yeah. his skill, and how players had to react. Players retired because of him. Players had to change their games fundamentally because of him. Um, And they weren't considered great. Yvonne Lindell wasn't considered great until he could beat McEnroe. And so McEnroe set the standard. And if you then go back to all the players who set standards, it's a very short list. Mm -hmm. And that's where I have McEnroe in the top five. At five. Who's four for you? Rod Laver. Rod Laver. He's from the 60s. Uh, He won two Grand Slams in the calendar year eight years apart. So that's when they had amateur and pro. Mm -hmm. And so he won the Grand Slam that the Grand Slam in sequence is the Australian, the French, Wimbledon, and the US Open. You have to win them in that order in the same calendar year. And Laver did that in 61 and then went pro. And so he couldn't play in Wimbledon or the US Open for eight years. And he came back in 1969 and won the Grand Slam again. And Rocket Rod, and he was a servant volleyer. And if he had today's technology, I don't think McEnroe's game in today's technology with the touch that he had, he played the short game like I do, would be competitive at the, at this, at the highest level. I think Laver would have been and uh, with today's technology and would be able to go toe-to-toe with, with Federer, Djokovic, or Nadal. Hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong here. So... Years ago, I was a pretty big Pete Sampras fan mm-hmm. when Sampras had kind of, I think, claimed the mantle for certainly the best player alive, but then it 
got into the like, is he the greatest of all time? And it, it, cr please correct me here, but as I recall, Sampras would always say it was Laver. I McEnroe, almost everyone says it's Laver. I think Federer has even said it was okay. Laver. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Pete, best serve ever to walk the earth. Still? Uh, oh, yeah. And best second serve, bar none. And that's why he did so well at Wimbledon. Uh, his serve, uh, you could easily put him as one of the greatest players of all time. Um, I think he was relied too much on his big serve. Uh -huh. And that was it. And you put him on other surfaces where the serve wasn't as dominant and his skill showed um, in his all-around game. I would place Agassi higher than Sampras. Uh, overall. Uh, even though Sampras had yeah. considerably more grand slams. But Agassi, you are saying, is the greater all-around. All-around tennis player. Yeah. So you put him above Sampras. Okay. Sampras, though, your greatest best serve best ever. Best serve ever. Djokovic, tennis. best backhand, backhand ever. Okay. Who's your third is Bjorn Borg. Bjorn Borg. Okay. I mean, someone who can win seven French Opens and six Wimbledons back to back only a month apart. And this is before technology and the courts were incredibly fast. So grass used to be faster than it is today. Uh, very expensive to maintain. If you remember the old... Uh, cameras on the Wimbledon grass, it was worn out and it was basically dirt and the, the ball would never come off the ground and it was super fast. Um, and he won that directly after winning um, the French Open, which is the slowest game. And so Borg dominated tennis the way Federer did in the early 2000s, the way Djokovic is doing it right now, the way Nadal did it at the French. Borg was every bit as dominant as that. And that's what was Put McEnroe and his arrival to dethrone at the peak um, was so shocking about McEnroe. But Borg, easily the third best tennis player of all time. Hmm. You keep say, you've said this multiple times now over the last several days, but that the, this claim that McEnroe caused Borg to retire. Borg literally said that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Okay. They're best of friends, and so. Um, when the arguably the, there's two great tennis matches, Nadal Federer at Wimbledon in 2000, I think it was seven or eight, seven, um, or McEnroe Borg, and it's the first McEnroe Borg uh, where they had the 18-16 fourth set tiebreaker that McEnroe won, um, a 30 plus minute tiebreaker of sheer drama. Um, Borg ended up winning that match eight six in the fifth set, but you could see it in his eyes. You could see it that he knew McEnroe was coming. <laughs> And McEnroe beat him at the U.S. Open the next tournament and then beat him at Wimbledon the next year after winning the French and retired. Okay. <laughs> True story. That's pretty good. Number two. Uh, Nadal. Huh. I, I, don't, Nadal. I don't like this answer for some reason. Yeah. I, I think I'm a Nadal hater or something. But how um, are you in good company in putting Nadal as your second of all, or is that a bit of a reach? Oh, no. I, I think there's a lot of people who would agree with me. Okay. I mean, he has the second most grand slams of all time next to only one behind Djokovic. And, uh, and he beat Djokovic down two sets to none at Australia this year. Hmm. And so Nadal, what, what is it about Nadal? Yeah. His competitiveness. He had a refusal to lose, and he still does. I think his game is hard on his body mm -hmm. with all the torque he puts on the ball. But his defensive game, his aggressive attitude, and his absolute will to win 
puts him at number two, if not number one. I think his will to win, just will to win. Will to win. His will to win. Uh, it's hard to find another competitor as good as Nadal. And he had Federer's number, mm-hmm. right? He had Federer's number. He beat him, eventually beat Federer at Wimbledon, mm-hmm. uh, which is unheard of after winning, what, 13 French Opens mm-hmm. or 14? I don't know exact number. But uh, Nadal is Borg with strength. <laughs> wow. Right. He is, uh, he's, he's fun to watch. And, uh, what makes him fun to watch for me is his absolute refusal to lose. So going into a match, I suppose somebody walking in to have to play Federer might just go into that thinking, I'm not even on this person's level when it comes to talent and ability and the rest, but maybe going into a match against Nadal, it's like, it's going to take everything to kill this guy everything maybe like and they might be thinking that more than anybody else they're going to have to play you have to play perfect to beat him and that's i think mentally exhausting and i knew federer knew it you know djokovic knows you know every player who would play nadal what you described it perfectly they knew they were in for a fight and were they up for it that day Mm -hmm. because he's going to fight and that's what I, and Jimmy Connors did that back in the seventies and eight, early eighties, he would fight and he was not great at anything except uh-huh. to a return a serve. Uh, but his will to win made him really hard to beat. And that's, and Nadal, you know, did it with the greats right around him, right? We, we had a moment in time from 2010 until now of watching Djokovic, Nadal and Federer. It, it spoiled tennis. Three of the greatest tennis players to live. I don't have Djokovic in there, but um, certainly have Nadal at number two. So would you be inclined that this has been cool? I like how you're like Djokovic, best backhand ever, Sampras, best serve ever. Would you then, when we're talking about the the sh- the greatest will ever with with Nadal, would you then also say he's the best defensive player ever because they seem to be pretty related, yeah. don't they? I think him and Federer are maybe the two best and I would put Nadal above Federer in his defense. Absolutely. And I think it goes with his attitude. Huh. He he would pull shots out when you thought he was done. Yeah. And the opponent thought he was done and a clean winner on the other side where he had no business making it. And Nadal did that better than anybody, you're saying? In my opinion. Yeah. I, I think Nadal's fight uh, he was probably one of the most entertaining to watch because he was never finished. Yeah. <laughs> Who else would go in that list? Like you, like you think you've won the point. You didn't win the point. You, you then start thinking that would be a winning shot against anybody else, but I'm terrified that it's going to get returned. So we've got Nadal. You've put Federer in that His class. Defense, I, Djokovic has an incredible defensive game. Oh, you're saying nice things about. I, I, appreciate uh novak but um i don't think he you walk onto a court and changed the game where mcenroe changed the game and his peers were in awe of him federer's peers are in awe of him borg's peers were in awe his peers that they knew they were in for a fight and the sheer talent on the court and i just and maybe it's unfair to say that about Djokovic because he went in an era that you had Federer and Nadal at the same time. They weren't in awe of him, right? He mm-hmm. 
outlasted them. He was much younger. And now he's accruing his grand slams at the actual sunset of Federer and the sunset of Nadal. And I don't mean to take that away because the tennis players today, Alcaraz and others, are just phenomenal. He just didn't walk onto the court where the audience, everyone in the room was there to see him and was being amazed by him the way Nadal, Borg, McEnroe, even Laver uh, sort of changed the games. So we're at your number one. Roger Federer is John McEnroe with power. <laughs> right. It's, it's, he, is, he has every ounce of skill that McEnroe brought to the court, but he could do it with power and touch. McEnroe was all touch all the time. Uh, and just the finesse of McEnroe. But Federer has that. But Federer's faster, stronger. And his eyesight. I mean, there's a match, Wimbledon, that Roddick was at his absolute peak, Andy Roddick, hitting these 150-mile-an-hour serves. And it was arguably another great Wimbledon match that Federer won. And you couldn't – never before that match did I see someone handle the big serve. Right, Sampras had a big serve, and they were and Wimbledon got really boring until they changed mm-hmm. the surface. That it was either a service winner or a service return, then a winner. Mm-hmm. It was a three point shot yeah. when you played Sampras. Yeah, his serve was that good, but the courts were that bad. With Federer, he was now running into Roddick, who had every bit of a serve that Sampras had, not the second, but his first. And Federer ate it alive and just rallied, and suddenly you got eight or ten point rallies off a 150-mile-an-hour serve, which was it never happened before Federer showed up. Agassi was the best returner, right, and in his generation. But Federer and Nadal and Djokovic, their eyesight and quickness are handling serves uh, on par with Agassi, who I would say had the greatest return. But those, the power of the top three could do it too. Hmm. Um, but then Federer was John McEnroe with strength. Hmm. So little side street here, Agassi, in the conversation for best return of all time, but it's not, you don't think, a clear-cut number one best returner. It's tough when you look at, I mean, Connors was, Jimmy Connors was the best return in tennis. And he he was the first one with almost no serve and, and win Grand Slam championships. Uh-huh. Agassi fell into that pool. He didn't really have a huge serve. Yeah. Uh, but he had an unbelievable return that could eat Boris Becker. He could handle Sampras's serve, Edberg's. But then, I don't know if it was technology or change or something, Federer's return is as good as Agassi's, it feels like. And same with Nadal's. And they're suddenly handling equally powerful serves. And and I would put Djokovic's return hmm on par with Agassi. So I can't say he's clear cut, Mm -hmm. but he certainly, if someone said he was the best, I wouldn't really have a gripe. And I'm, by the way, this is so fun to do this top five in an individual sport because I find myself always wrapped up in the, you know, the Michael Jordan versus LeBron James or the, you know, top four or five greatest basketball players ever, whatever. And those are team sports. And it's like, that's a massive variable as opposed to tennis. It's like, no, it was always just these individuals out there. You don't have to think about how much did having Scotty Pippen on the floor, you know, change things at all. So 
But where I want to go with that is I'm hearing your personal opinion. Then I'm trying to get to like, where are you maybe on your own personal island versus where do you think the consensus is really out there? From a consensus point of view, where do you think the, you know, the tennis literati have Agassi today in terms of his returns? Oh, there's, he's still regarded as one of the greatest of all time. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. With your keeping poor Mr. Djokovic out of your top five, do you think today among the experts, would they push back on that or do uh, you? Yeah. I mean, you don't win the most well, grand slams in the history of tennis and not be considered that. I think that if you, but if you actually, what are you reasoning? Yeah. Is the bigger question. Yeah. Did he change the sport? Did he have a presence or awe about his game that no everyone else knew they couldn't beat yeah. in their moment, yeah. right? McEnroe in 1984, no one could beat McEnroe except himself. He was up two sets to love on Lindell at the French Open and lost it himself. Lindell did not beat McEnroe at the French Open. McEnroe beat McEnroe mm -hmm. at the French Open. And so you go to 1984 and no one could beat John McEnroe and they knew it. Federer in 2000, geez, 2004 until 2010 had a stretch that he would, walked on water mm -hmm. and no one could touch him. I don't think there was a moment that everyone in the room, now Djokovic is older, mm -hmm. so you could see Alcaraz or mm -hmm. others wanting and could easily beat him. Uh, so he never had that moment the way Nadal, Federer, Laver, and McEnroe had. And so of all mine, you think of the total number of wins, McEnroe had the shortest career of these individuals mm -hmm. and the least number of grand slams. But if you were around in the late 70s, early 80s when McEnroe showed up, I think everyone who has a history of the game is much like Laver. You single out McEnroe as the one who was different. Let's talk about your women's top five. I assume number one is absolutely undisputed by anyone. It's Serena Williams. I would hope so. We were talking earlier that actually kind of your story a bit, you're like, we're talking about the Williams sister's father, Richard Williams, and you're kind of a massive fan of his. And the movie King Richard should be watched by everybody. It's It's terrific. And we were saying like, if the Williams sister's story wasn't real, no one would believe that it was true, right? It's incredible. And, um, and that movie actually helped me understand a lot of the story, the history with Venus and Serena and that um, Venus was actually initially who we thought was going right. to be the greatest of all time. And what Serena did in her career is... Uh, Remarkable. Absolutely Just remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Um, but talk a bit about her game because you've done an, such a good job describing the games of uh, on the men's side. So assessing Serena's. Venus brought power to tennis. Martina, you could say, brought the power and she was the first to do yeah. it. But Venus was the first one to really bring power to the women's game. Um, and her control was nothing compared to her sisters. So Venus started the power, demonstrated the power. People were in awe of that power, but the control wasn't there. Huh. And, and nor was the, the mental edge 
And if you look at Serena, the, the sheer power that she hit and her court control and her consistency, I think that comes from her mental strength. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Serena was the Nadal of women's tennis. Mm. I mean, just refusal to lose with absolute power. Mm. And, and that mental aspect gave her much more control than her sister. Um, and I, she was always the more competitive. You saw that in the movie. Yeah. Um, and it just took her time to find herself. So that's your comp. Nadal is the closest player on the men's side, you'd say, to Serena? Yeah. Okay. Pure power. Interesting. I think all court game are my two and three. I don't think Serena had the games that my two and three had. And Martina Navratilova would be my number two. Okay. Um, And then Steffi Graf would be my number three. And their all-around games were, I think, slightly better than Serena's. But they couldn't hold her power, yeah. her sheer power and control overwhelmed them. I mean, obviously, Steffi played them. I'm not sure Martina ever played Serena. Uh, they may have crossed right at the very end of Martina's career. Mm. But Martina Lavatrolova, I mean, there's, there's two women that need to be three. Actually, I mean, she's Venus. Yeah. So between Venus, Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King. Yep. The what they did to the women's game, all three of them changed it, right? Mar- no one would, we wouldn't have Title IX sports if it wasn't for Billie Jean King. Uh, and so Billie Jean is my number five. And just because of what she brought to not just women's sport, just sport in general and equal rights. And, but more importantly, her game was eloquent. And uh, first true serve and volleyer to come into tennis, which was a blast to watch. And so, but Martina um, said it was okay to be strong for a female. She was the first to do it, to have an unbelievable physique in conditioning and Mm -hmm. brought conditioning to the sport. And so you've got to give Martina credit for what she did to change the game. And then Venus did the same thing breaking barriers coming from Compton coming in at the sheer dominance that what she did at the pressure and the crowds against her to do it you've got to give kudos so it's hard to give a top five I actually Mm. tie Billie Jean King and Venus Williams Mm. as number five Mm. I have Chris Everett at number four Mm. just for the sheer consistency and her ability to adjust from sort of the traditional baseliner, not necessarily in great condition to get in the physical shape to beat Martina because Martina kept getting stronger and stronger and to give Everett credit, she kept up. She didn't have the all around game that Martina had, but she kept up and was competitive to the end. And so that's where I have Chris Everett and sheer number of wins at number four. Hmm. And then I have Steffi Graf and at three at three and then martina and then uh serena Hmm. it's it it's amazing each one of them what they did to the sport is much like my top five men in terms of changing the game who changed the game who pioneered who was obviously left out of the men's game was arthur ash um Uh and what he was able to do and his upbringing to to win wimbledon to win the u.s open to compete at that level uh you were remiss not to bring up Arthur Ashe. Mm-hmm. But I think those are the reasons the five men and women, their awe on the court 
is from both the fans and the players because you could see it in the interviews on how they just were in awe of each other. And those are why they're my top five. And that is probably the reason Djokovic isn't quite there. Slightly different question. If we were going to drop any of these players in any point in time, any technology, right? So you're going to go back, we're going to plunk this player in. Oh, now we're, you know, in the era of wooden rackets. Oh, now we're 20 years from now. Who knows exactly where the game will be or where the material sciences will be and all this stuff. You have to pick a single male player and a single female player for any time in the future or in the past, your number one male, your number one female. Rod Laver. Over Federer. Yeah. Wait a second. I thought for sure you were going to say Federer. Yeah. No, Rod Laver. There's something about that guy. He So Federer won one French Open. Laver won, I, I don't know exactly. I know he won two in the two Grand Slam years. Um, he won on every single surface, convincingly. And Federer has mostly Wimbledon titles. Nadal has mostly French uh-huh. Open titles. Djokovic is probably the more balanced of any of them in terms of the sheer number. Uh, he had a power game in a game with wooden rackets. And wooden rackets were really a finesse at the time. And so I would say Rod Laver. So peak Laver against peak Federer. 25 years in the future. Now, you have to give Laver, you have to give Laver the technology and the training that yeah. Federer had. Yep. Right? Federer grew up in a different world. Yep. So his junior program, his ability yeah. and skill level are far beyond Rod Laver's. Yeah. Right? But if Laver grew up in that environment, the way he dominated the men's game in 61 and 69, it's hard pressed. I mean, it was equivalent to McEnroe's 1984. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, Federer had 2006. You could say Djokovic had 2016, but Laver had two of the greatest years ever known to man. And that's why I would put him there. So then why isn't Laver your number one in your top five? That's a great question. Uh, I didn't see him play enough. Yeah. And I saw Federer play a, his opposite. Federer's opposition is far better than Rod Laver's, right? Today's tennis, yeah. the top 100. Yeah. You know, they could be arguably the top five back in Laver's time just because of their childhood training and their upbringing and their fitness. Mm -hmm. There is just something, I don't know, a lot of people who maybe just call me old and nostalgic, but there's something about Rod Laver that everyone looks back and saying, wow, what if he were around today? Mm -hmm. Because he had power. Like, I mean, he played like McEnroe as a lefty, but he had power. And that's where I said Federer was. Federer is John McEnroe with power. So on the women's side, dropping a single player. Martina Navratilova. Over Serena? Hands down. I am not sure Serena, if Martina had the ability as a child to play as much as Serena did, and you dropped him on the court, Martina's all around game and she was strong. You know, Serena can outpower her, but I think with today's technology, with today's training, Martina's all-around game, much like Laver and Federer. I mean, just Serena would be a very close second. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, if you had to put Serena back on a, you said go either way. Yeah, and you go put them on the wooden rackets yeah. where power 
is can't, not as important. You, you can't right? muster the you, same amount, right? You cannot control the game the way the rackets changed everything. Yeah. Uh, the balls changed everything. And if you put her in the reverse direction, I don't think she could hold a candle to Martina with the wooden racket and with okay. those frames, even with those upbringing, because power is not part of the past game, mm-hmm. right? Laver proved in wooden rackets that he could win, but he won with power. Um, Serena won with power of today's rackets. Can she win with finesse or did, could she generate the power? I don't know. Hmm. And, um, and maybe it's a bias to a serve and volleyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Martina was a brilliant serve and volleyer. Yeah. And, uh, maybe that's showing the shortcomings of my, my opinions, but those, those are sort of my surprising at any moment in time. Yeah pick up the racket but i don't think that's the greatest of all time because i don't well labor may have had awe from the audiences the way federer did but very few people no one's written an article about novak Djokovic, (laughs) the way he wrote about federer no one's written about nadal i would argue maybe they have from a sheer competitiveness Mm. and we just haven't found it but you have to take the awe of federer and it would be a very close match between federer and labor let's Mm. be honest Mm. This is fun. Yeah, it's thanks great. for um, and it's it's fun that it's uncrafted because I do think sports is a craft. Yeah, and I think every sport, from motor racing to tennis to skiing, there is such a dedication and beauty to the sport that it should be talked about and crafted. Hmm. So thank you. I appreciate you saying that because yeah. I I've, I've been like, what am I doing? Like, why I was not tempted to have this conversation as a blister podcast. I really wanted it to be on crafted and and I do actually think that there maybe it does feel that there is something maybe a little extra about tennis, about the art, about the craft and and um but that said, I I appreciate what you just said, which is all of the sports when you really dive into them. It is art and it is science and it is craft and it is dedication. And, um, it's why it felt a bit weird maybe coming in and putting it in this box, but I, I quite like it. (laughs) So, um, and I quite like talking about this stuff, uh, with, with thoughtful people and, and getting your perspective. And I hope others enjoy this conversation too. And what would make me really happy is if it got, if it kind of sparked people having this very debate about tennis, but then took it into the other sports they love talking with their friends about too. And I would, um, it's really got me thinking about how we write about, think about, evaluate and assess skiers. And, um, I think there's probably some, um, some work still to do on those fronts. Um, because there have been such magnificent skiers throughout history. And I think to, for all of us to better appreciate, to think harder about what they're doing and, you know, perhaps even continue to write or write better about some of these things that that would be, that would be good and deserved. I do have to say one more thing about McEnroe, if I could. Last word. 1984, he played Jimmy Connors in the finals of Wimbledon and had only four unforced errors in the entire match. Many people consider that the greatest tennis match ever played. Huh. And so that's where you think someone with so few grand slams mm-hmm. can leave that in that mark mm-hmm. in, in your memory of you think you just saw perfection. And it's hard to say that in tennis when the opponent is trying to chip away at it. Mm-hmm. But 
he had that year. I know Federer's had those years, but that moment in time is just ingrained in my head. And so I had to end with that. John McEnroe as religious experience. Hey, Troy, thank you. This was fun. Thank you. uh, Here's to more good conversations down the line. Amen. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of Crafted. I want to say thanks so much to Troy for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.